Recently, there was a brother from our congregation here at the peak. He gave me a suggestion for a sermon, and he gave me a suggestion for the title as well. And I felt like I would follow through on that this morning. The title of the message, The Crisis of Spiritual Casualness. The Crisis of Spiritual Casualness. Would you agree with me that many Protestant churches in America have lost much of what they once stood for? I feel that way. And you know, it's much easier for us to detect spiritual casualness in other people, but not so much in ourselves. And as I prepared for this message, the focus and the burden seemed to shift from the collective body of the congregation to one of personal introspection, to look at Jay, to look at me, are there areas where I can grow? Are there areas that I'm being challenged with spiritual casualness? <clears throat> Churches do not usually drift until individuals begin to allow subtle changes to take place, and usually not by deliberate choice, but by default. So how do we know? How can we tell when there's been a subtle shift in spiritual values? How do we know? I'd like to suggest three things. Number one, it is made evidence by willingness to compromise truth. Two, by being satisfied or complacent with the current conditions. And three, it's evidenced by a lukewarm spirit. So the, the first point of the message is the definition of spiritual casualness. Now usually when I have a sermon, I give the title, I don't define what the title is. But I thought this morning we ought to consider this title and try to define the crisis of spiritual casualness. I'd like to look at three words in that title. The first one would be crisis, the second one spiritual, and the third one would be casualness. The definition from Webster's of the word crisis is this. A turning point in the course of anything, a decisive or crucial time, stage, or event, a time of great danger, often one which threatens to result in great consequences. The second word, spiritual. Of the spirit or the soul as distinguished from the body or material matters. And then the word casualness means to be careless, nonchalant, dispassionate, or to be indifferent. And so if you put these three definitions together, and these are in my words, it would be someone or even a group of people who by choice or by default are in great spiritual danger, and yet they're indifferent to that danger. So are you and I, are we challenged with a crisis of spiritual casualness. The second point of the message would be an Old Testament example of spiritual casualness. If you would, turn with me to 2 Kings. I'd like to consider briefly the life of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was a king in the southern kingdom in Judah. He reigned about 29 years. And by God's own admission from his word, Hezekiah, he was a godly king. He started out well. 
Let's pick up. I think I'm going to read from the NIV this morning. Second um, Kings chapter 18, verses 3 to 7. What does God say about this king, Hezekiah? He did what, what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. What did he do? Verse 4, he removed the high places, he smashed the sacred stones, and he cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah. Notice what God is saying about this man. Either before him or after him, he held fast to the Lord and he did not cease to follow him. He kept the commandments the Lord had given Moses and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. So notice the tremendous beginning for this king. I think he was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned for 29 years. I think that makes him about 54 years old at his death. I think that's correct. Notice in verse 4, the first thing, there were spiritual reforms. He began to cleanse the land. Secondly, also in verse 4, he began to destroy the idol worship. And it's interesting, I think his dad's name was Ahaz and his son's name was Manasseh. And both Ahaz and Manasseh were terribly wicked kings. But here was this godly king, Hezekiah, following his dad, Ahaz, and he was a godly king. Where did it come from? How did he begin to destroy this idol worship? But that's what he began to do. And it's interesting, this bronze snake that he destroyed, Nehushtan, you know, that should have been a symbol of God's might and power. The children of Israel were delivered after they had complained. Uh, God said to put a snake on a pole, and anyone that looked at this snake was healed. And it was a symbol, a type and shadow of the Lord Jesus, of looking to him. But anyway, the children of Israel or Judah, they began to worship this snake. It should have been a symbol, you know, of God's great power, and yet they began to worship this snake, and Hezekiah destroyed it. Thirdly, in verse 5, notice Hezekiah's his reputation. Maybe not so much his reputation, but his godly character. It's beautiful. I don't have a lot of time to just on the things that had happened or the blessings, the good that was in his life early on. But he had godly character. In verse 6, it says that he was, he was faithful to God, or it says he clave to the Lord God. Most of you know I've talked about when I see the word cleave or clave, I think of Formica glue. Because Formica glue, you put two pieces together and it's about impossible to take those, that Formica apart unless you break it. Anyway, the Bible says here, Hezekiah, he claved to the Lord and he departed not from following him. He was faithful to the Lord. Hezekiah was a man of undivided loyalty. Number five, he was blessed by God. It says in verse seven, and he prospered whithersoever he went forth. Whatsoever he undertook, this man was, was successful. 
the last things that I was, I was really blessed as I thought about Hezekiah. The fourth thing, he was faithful to God. Fifth thing, he was blessed by God. The sixth thing, he was protected by God. And the seventh thing, he was healed by God. Let's look at the, the um, chapter 19, verse 35. You know how this enemy king, the Assyrians, had come against uh, Judah and Hezekiah was concerned and he laid it before the Lord, seeking the Lord's blessing and protection in chapter 19, verse 35. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and he smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred fourscore and eighty-five thousand and okay, a hundred and eighty-five thousand. And when they arose early in, early in the morning, behold, there were all the dead corpses. So Hezekiah was protected by God. He had laid this before God and he was protected. And then the sixth thing, he was, I'm sorry, the seventh thing, he was healed by God in chapter 20, verse 7. And Isaiah said, take a lump of figs and they took and laid it on the boil and he recovered. You know, Hezekiah was at the point of death and he cried out to God and God made a way for this man to be healed uh, and God miraculously healed him. And also in chapter 20, verse 11, God said, I'll do a sign to prove that this will come to pass. And Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backward by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. Very interesting. The, the shadow had gone down on the sundial, and God said, what shall I do? And Hezekiah said, make it go backwards. And how long a time that was, I'm not sure, but it went back. The shadow went back 10 steps rather than forward. Uh, an awesome miracle that God did. Now let's move on. I'd like to ask you, what was Hezekiah's end? Now I'm not going to read all these verses, but in chapter 20, verses 12 to 21, we have representatives that came from a heathen nation, from the Nation of Assyria, I'm sorry, of Babylon. These representatives from Babylon, they came, they heard about Hezekiah, they heard that he had been healed, and they wanted to come. They brought a gift, and they came to visit him because God had given him 15 extra years. So Hezekiah, at this point, he had an opportunity to proclaim the goodness and power of God. What did he do? Chapter 20, verse 13. What did Hezekiah do when he had been healed and this enemy nation had come in, sent this envoy in, and he had an opportunity to bless, bless God and show the power of God? Verse 13, chapter 20, verse 13. And Hezekiah hearkened unto them, and he showed them all the house of the precious things, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, and all the house of his armor, and all that was found in his treasures, there was nothing in his house, nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Opportunity to show these, this nation the wonders and the power of God. And it seemed that in a moment of pride, he showed the full extent of his kingdom, which was a sad thing to do. And brothers and sisters, this was a challenge to me. You know, he was about halfway through, if I understand, his, his reign. 
And, you know, what about me? When I have opportunity to, to show the enemy, am I, do I want them to know, well, I have this farm and I've raised chickens and I have this asset and I have that asset and, you know, rejoice with me. Is, is that what we want to be known for? No. I hope that we point to the Lord Jesus. We have that opportunity just like Hezekiah had. But we will, will we be pr proud and show the enemy what, some glorious thing that we have done? Or are we going to point to the Lord Jesus? Okay, we're talking about an example of spiritual casualness. And we looked at what he did. He showed the enemy his kingdom. And God pronounced judgment in verses 17 and 18. God said, Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shalt they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This was the judgment that was pronounced against Hezekiah and the kingdom of Judah. And what was Hezekiah's response? I'm going to read this from the NIV. He heard this impending doom. He heard of the instruction that was soon, the destruction that was soon coming. And Hezekiah responded this way. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. Hezekiah replied, For he thought, Will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? And I submit to you that that, that is a callous proclamation, seeming with little concern for his own posterity. The judgment was, Your children, your grandchildren, some that's going to issue from you, they're going to be taken into captivity, and they're going to serve as eunuchs. And he said, for he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? Was it matter? Very calloused. To me, that is the crisis of spiritual casualness, an example of a man who was caught up in casualness. Now I'd like to move on to the third point of the message, a modern-day example of casualness. Have any of you in this audience heard of the national debt? Obviously, that's rhetorical. You know the national debt. It seems to me 10 or 15 years ago, we heard politicians talking about the national debt and how dangerous and what should be done that we could regain some of this lost territory. How many of you have recently heard politicians that are really concerned about the national debt? Is there anyone here that knows currently what the national debt is? Anybody? What? That is correct. 30.8 and counting. Do you know how much money it would take for each man, woman, and child in the United States to eliminate the national debt? Do you know how much it would be? $91,500. And you ask me, why do I bring up a national debt in a sermon? Well, for a parallel. Sadly, there's a lot of people that are living their spiritual lives with little thought for Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, where the Bible says, 
and as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after that the judgment. It seems like the politicians have no concern, no disrespect, but it seems like the president and, and those that are serving with him can spend money indiscriminately with no thought for tomorrow. How can they do that? You can't run your business that way. I can't run mine that way. But let's think of the spiritual parallel. Are we living realizing that in a short period we're going to pass off the scene and we're going to stand before God and give, we're going to be judged. We're going to give an account of our life. Are we thinking about the future, what's coming? You know, there's many people. I had to think also of, of Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Um, there's many people that want to deliberately reject truth Romans chapter 1, verse 28, the Bible tells us, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. There's a lot of people in our world today that don't want to know about God. They don't want to know about Jesus. They don't want to know and think about the second coming of Christ. They don't want to think about judgment. So I ask you, is ignorance bliss? Because people don't want to think about it, is that going to change the future? Absolutely not. A little interesting, funny thing happened thinking about ignorance is bliss. This morning I was coming to church in my pickup. And I was coming up Route 33 and I noticed that my, speed, my speedometer was not working. So ignorance is bliss, right? Now suppose I would have sped up and ran 70 miles an hour was stopped by an officer and he would say Mr. Rohr you was going 70 miles an hour in a 50 mile, 55 mile an hour zone uh, do you think he, he would be impressed if I said I'm sorry officer my speedometer wasn't working I, I didn't know how fast I was going uh, do you think he would let me off just because I was ignorant of what this I knew what the speed limit is and I could tell pretty well uh, how fast I was going, but that did happen this morning. My speedometer is not working. But let's don't say ignorance is bliss. All right. I'd like to think briefly now of some symptoms of spiritual casualness. What are the symptoms? How do we know if somebody is casual? I'd like to suggest several things, and I want to move through these fairly quickly. Number one, complacency is the enemy of the soul. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 to 15. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 to 15. I'm not planning to read all these verses, but I'd like to ask you the question. When was the children of Israel most in danger? Were they most in danger when they were going through the wilderness? Or were they most in danger when they arrived in Canaan? What do you think? You don't have to respond verbally, but what do you think? Was Israel most in danger when they was in the wilderness or when they arrived in Canaan? There was exhortation here in this passage, and I'm not going to turn, to, I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to start with verse 11. And houses full of good things. When you arrive in the land, the good land that God has given you, which 
Um, I'm sorry, let me back up to the part. And to Jacob and to give thee great and goodly cities which you didn't build, in verse 10, verse 11, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells dig which thou diggest not, and vineyards and olive trees which you didn't plant. And when they shall have, then when thou shall have eaten and be full, beware. Beware lest thou forget God. Brothers and sisters, I believe that Israel was in more danger when they arrived in Canaan than they were when they were struggling through the wilderness. Why? Because of callousness, of the easy life, things handed to them. And brothers and sisters, are we not in America at that very same place? I believe we are in a dangerous place. In our churches today, there's a lot of churches that have lost a lot. And why? Because they're complacent. They're casual. Are we casual? It's a challenge to me. That's verse 12. The second thing, it seemed, the second symptom of spiritual casualness I would suggest to you is a primary focus on the temporal. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. verses 16 to 21 you know the account there was a man who was very rich and he had so much he didn't know what to do with it all and he said what shall I do in verse 17 I have no room to bestow my fruits and he said this is what I'm going to do I'm going to build barns go tear down my barns and build greater and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods and I will say to my soul soul Thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God pronounced judgment and said, Thou fool, you're not, your soul's going to be required. Verse 21, So is he that layeth up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. It seems that another symptom is a primary focus is on the temporal. Where's our focus? Is our focus on the temporal? is our focus on the eternal. It's up to us. Third symptom. It seems like people's, their primary, I'm sorry, their spiritual perception is skewed. <clears throat> I'm not going to turn to this one. Revelation chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, God is speaking and addressing the church at Laodicea. They had a perception of their own condition. They said, I am rich, and increase with goods, and what? I have need of nothing. That was their perspective. I've got all these goods, got everything laid up. I don't need a thing. But what was God's perception of their condition? He said, you're wretched and miserable and... Correct. Poor and blind and naked. There's a tremendous difference between their perception and God's perception. How about us? Do we think we pretty well have it made? Things are going good. We don't have much to face. Is it possible that we could be complacent, casual about where we are? And God said, there are some things about your life or about the congregation at the peak even that need addressed. Where are we? Has our spiritual perception been skewed? Fourthly, Thinking of the increased love for the things of this world. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 
and following. 1 John chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 15 and following. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. There's many people have an increasing love for the things of this world. That is a symptom of casualness. Fifthly, I believe that there is a decreasing love for others and a decreasing love for the lost. If you would turn to Luke chapter 10, you don't have to do that if you don't want to. We have the account of the man who had fallen among thieves. And you have the priest and you have the Levite and you have the Samaritan. They all went by and they saw this man that had fallen among thieves. And they had a much different response. The priest and the Levite, they didn't want to get their hands dirty. They didn't want to take the time to be involved with this needy person, and they passed by on the other side. But the Samaritan, he went, and he was neighbor to the man who had fallen among thieves. And I guess I was challenged by this. As we go about our duties and our responsibilities, we're going through town, or we meet up with somebody that has a physical or a spiritual need, do we think, well, I don't want to get my hands dirty. I've got an agenda. I've got things to do today. I don't have time for that person. Are we becoming spiritually casual? I had just a few questions I would like to you ask each one of us as we think about our church life. These are practical questions, and these could point to spiritual casualness if we're not careful. I'd like to ask four questions. Which church activity would you be more inclined to attend? Would you be more inclined to hand out invitations for summer Bible school or more inclined to go to a fellowship meal? Would you be more inclined to attend Wednesday evening prayer meeting and Bible study or would you rather stay at home after a hard day's work? And brothers and sisters, you might think I'm preaching at you, but in my understanding, the, in October when we have our business meeting, time and time again, you have been concerned with our attendance on Wednesday evening. You were the ones that brought that up, not the preachers or the deacons or the bishop. And there's times that we have good attendance here, and I praise God for that. But I'm asking, where are we? on Wednesday evening attendance. Number three, would we rather go to cottage meetings in the community or would we rather be involved in the fifth Wednesday evening activity? Which would you be more inclined to go to? Or the fourth one, what about the street ministry in D.C. versus going to a church camp out? Which would you be more inclined to attend? John Kennedy said this, don't ask what you can, I'm sorry, don't ask what your country can do for you, but rather what can you do for your country. And brothers and sisters, I think that is, that is a really good question as we think about church life. If you and I focus only on what we can get out of a church service, we're likely to be disappointed. I ask you, what do you have to contribute? 
If you're asked to teach a class, if you're asked to lead songs, if you are asked to serve as a librarian, if you're asked to do whatever, I think we have a tendency when we sit down and we begin to look at others and we're, we're thinking, you know, I'm not getting much out of them or something, we can soon become judgmental. I'm asking, what do you have? What do I have to contribute to the life and the health and the vitality of our congregation here at the peak or to the local body of Christ? Last point of the message. What's the remedy? The remedy for spiritual casualness. And I believe that would be, number one, an unswerving love for God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, the very first commandment, God says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And if this cup was completely full, if, we are, if our love and devotion to God is completely full, well then there's not room for other things. But when we began to partake and leave God out a part of it and start filling it up with other things, this, our cup can become pretty diluted with maybe the things of this world. Luke 10, 20, Luke 10, 27. And he answered and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. A remedy for spiritual casualness would be an unswerving love for God and for others. Number two, make seeking God a priority. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and... Okay, do we have to worry about the things, the food and the drink and what we're going to wear? Seek God first and he's promised that these things are going to be added unto you. There's nothing more important than your relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing more important for me. Are we taking that time? Are we making, seeking God a priority? Number three, are you thankful? Being thankful for God's mercy on my behalf. I was reminded of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. The mercies of God. The mercies of God. How often are we thankful like we should and thankful for the mercies of God? And that should be our motivation Present your bodies a living sacrifice. The mercies of God should motivate us to serve one another. Fourthly, <clears throat> I put this. Pray for the opportunity to serve others. And then I thought, well, that was wrong. And I don't think the opportunities are the problem. I think we're the problem. Sometimes we're not sensitive to the opportunities. So pray to be sensitive to the opportunities that you have. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. As we, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are the household of faith. We're talking about remedies for spiritual casualness. Number five. 
God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 and 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath re reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Are you grateful this morning to be reconciled to God? Do, do you desire that that could be passed on and others could be there, be reconciled to God? God has given you a ministry of reconciliation. And then I thought of Philippians chapter 2 verses 4 and 7. As we think of Jesus and the example that he was, we looked at in the Sunday school lesson this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. We have issues and things to consider in our lives, but we are to look beyond. What about my brother? What about a neighbor? Are there other people? Look beyond ourselves. And what do we see? What did Jesus do? Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation, and he took upon him the form of a servant. Jesus was a servant for you and for me. He was not so concerned about his own needs. He, there on the cross, he was making provision for his mother, and he was concerned for others. He became a servant. In conclusion, brothers and sisters, if I would ask you, what is the antidote for spiritual casualness, what would you say? Jesus, at 12 years of age, had a beautiful focus on his life's work. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 2, verse 49. He said, wished you not, or didn't you know I must be about my father's business? And brothers and sisters, I believe if we have that same focus, that same focus should be just the vaccination we need against spiritual casualness or complacency. And God bless each one of us to that end. Shall we have a song?